There's one too many. Open your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. We are uh, um, going to start a, a new series. We, we are done with David for now. Um, and uh, we are wanting to do our Christmas series this month by... Uh, now, don't get too excited. Uh, we are wanting to look at the genealogy of Jesus for the next four weeks. Don't get too excited. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad someone's like, hey, it's Bible. Uh, no, what we uh, series is called Divine Dynasties, take on Duck Dynasty, of course. And uh, we want to look at some of the people who made it in Jesus' uh, genealogy and explore their, their stories. So Matthew chapter 1, page 849 of your pew Bible. Uh, we want to read the first three verses. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us to still gather amid all the stuff that's been going on this year, and we pray that uh, we are starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Would you be so gracious to us? This morning, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our, man, our, our mouths, our hands, our feet, that we would see your word and be transformed by the power of the gospel. But we need your spirit more than anything. Would you be so kind as to bless us with your presence? May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I will confess to you that um, I have a fascination with true crime stories. I, I, I think that's part of getting old. Uh, is, is the older you get, um, the, the more you find it. Like the other day, I had Dateline on the other day. I said, honey, does this mean that I should start thinking about retirement? Right? I mean, uh, what, what, what are the parameters there? Uh, but it isn't that I'm entertained by the suffering of others. I, I can't imagine the, the pain and suffering people are going through. What I find most fascinating about a really good true crime story is the process by which the bad guy is caught, right? The, the process of the investigation, the, the uncovering of, of, of uh, clues and the interviews and the, the, everything that detectives had to go through to catch the bad guy. I just find that, that that's so fascinating. You, you walk into a, a, a crime scene and, and what you have is, is a puzzle and you've got to put that puzzle together and, and, and figure out who did this and bring them to justice. One of the recent investigative tools we, we, we have was used on one unsolved crime. It was unsolved for about 30 years or, or even 40 years because um, I, I believe the crimes happened in the 70s and 80s uh, that no one could just solve. And there were plenty of Internet sleuths that, that were trying to solve it. It wasn't until detectives tried a new uh, a tool. And that is they, they took the DNA they had uncovered from the crime uh, scenes and they sent it in to one of those genealogical DNA people. You know, maybe you've done this. Uh, that's how I, I already knew this with a name like McDaniel that I was Irish, right? Scott Irish. I mean, God already knew that. Um, but, but I'm sure you've done that. You, you've discovered where your family comes from and all, all that sort of stuff. And what they did was they used that tool 
to, 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 to see if they can find someone of relation and then take that connection, trace an entire genealogical record, and through that have a list of, of uh, uh, suspects that fit the DNA profile and would fit the regular profile of they were the right age, they lived in the right area, and all of that. And through that, the detectives were able to narrow down to, I think, three to five people, did, did further investigation, and landed on one person got the person's DNA and discovered this is the guy who did all those heinous crimes uh, all those decades ago. That is to say that what they do is in order to understand their suspect, they look back into their family. And in many ways, what we're doing here is to better understand Christ, not just who he is, but what Christ has done. What we want to do is to look back into the story of Christ as it unfolds through history and time. And what we'll see over the next four weeks is, is we find people in the, in the family of Christ who we might be surprised to find there. You would think that if, if, if you were in the family of Jesus, you must be perfect, right? But actually what we find is the opposite. So this week what we see in these opening verses is that Jesus' family line was made up of the broken now, one of the odd discoveries one may make when reading through the Bible, particularly that of the Old Testament, but not exclusively the Old Testament, is how many of the major characters of the Bible are deeply flawed. One could almost say, in fact, a commentator once noted this, that it's almost as if the Bible goes out of its way for you to know this individual was deeply flawed. Consider some not in the genealogy of Jesus. Take someone like Moses, who's guilty of murder. Miriam, his sister, who tried to uh, uh, do a coup against her, her own brother. Samson, well, what did he not do, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a much shorter list than what he actually did do. Elijah suffered from, from the great heights of his prophetic ministry to, to the depths of melancholy and depression, even to the point he wanted God to take his life then and there. But then we can consider Jesus' genealogy. The opening verses explore the Jewish patriarchs, and these men rightly loom large over the Jewish nation, much as our founding fathers as America, Americans loom large over our stories, so too these men loom large over Jewish identity. After all, all of them trace their racial, national, and religious origins to these men. Abraham, of course, was known as a man of deep faith. Isaac and Jacob, too, were known for their faith and perseverance during trying times. Yet, what is often overlooked with these patriarchs is how deeply broken they really were. Let's start with Abraham there. He's, of course, introduced in verse 2. Let's start with Abraham. And this is where the genealogy of Jesus through Matthew's pen really begins. The story of Abraham does not begin in Genesis 12. It's usually where we do begin his story with the promises of God given to Abraham. It actually begins in chapter 11 following the dispersion from the Tower of Babel. We'll start seeing this, Lord willing, in the 1st of January when we return to the story of Genesis. But following the genealogy of Shem, so you have the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, with the genealogy of Shem, the part you always skip, and then you get into there at the end, the introduction to Abram and his family. And what we discover is that Abram is from a city called Ur, which uh, strikingly for you uh, budding apologists here, uh, Ur for a long time was believed to be mythical. The Bible made it up. Only we have since discovered it. We have found it. In fact, 
You can learn the language of the Urites. Is that their name? I don't know. I just coined it. But, but you can learn their language. You can read their language. It is a very well-developed city in ancient Sumer, Mesopotamia, and whatnot. But Ur, we should note, is near the Babel sites. And so what we may think naturally about Abraham, that God calls out a righteous man to do righteous things, what we discover is absolutely the opposite. Abraham wasn't called because he was righteous. He was called while he was unrighteous, associated closely not just with Babel, but idol-worshiping polytheism. In Joshua chapter 24, we read, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived before the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So this means that the calling of Abraham was more than geographical. It was a transformation of the heart. Abraham didn't merely leave behind family and home, but his entire identity. He became someone different, leaving behind everything he had known to embrace everything that God would declare and make him to be. And so in Genesis 12, we, we, we open up with that promise that, that God gives Abraham. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you I will curse those who curse you, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, these verses in opening Genesis 12 are one of the most significant passages in the developing of both the book of Genesis and of the broader biblical narrative. God calls Abram out from among the nations to be a special and unique nation through him and his offspring, the nations of the world would be blessed. Thus, from the beginning, the identity and the character of this new nation is paramount. And if you read the story of Abraham, you're quite impressed. Can I highlight two things that always stick out to me when I read the story of Abraham? I trust you're familiar with much of it, so there's no need to go in a lot of detail. One thing that sticks out to me is Abraham's patience. Throughout the narrative, Abraham's age and inability to conceive with his wife, Sarah, is constantly brought up by the narrator. Let me give you a few examples. Genesis eleven thirty. 30. Now, Sarah was barren. She had no child. Chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Chapter 17, Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Chapter 18, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That is, have a child. Even Paul picks up on this, that insult to injury. Romans 4. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, speaking of Abraham, which was good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. One of the things we discover in the story of Abraham is that God promises to him to be a father of a nation. Now, I'm no uh, like scientist or anything. I mean, I did go to seminary, so what do I know? But I'm guessing that if you want to be a father of a nation, you should first be a father of a kid. Right? That makes sense to me. So the promise is to be a father, but he's not a father. 
And so here he is, advanced in age, and God makes this promise. And Abraham's going to wait a quarter of a century before being a father. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And every day he waits makes it less likely, scientifically, for him to experience that joy. Yet they do wait until the day Isaac is finally born. But it isn't just his patience that is noteworthy in the story of Abraham in Genesis. It's also his faith. Now, we should note here, enough. We, we, we've mentioned this before, faith and patience do go hand in hand. Those who are impatient lack a lot of faith. Those who lack a lot of faith lack a lot of patience. Their lack of patience is more noticeable usually. It's the first thing we notice, right? Chill dude is COVID. drive through lines are terrible right now, right? That's me preaching to myself right now. Um, but the promise of a son being born to Abraham is a matter not just of patience but of faith. Every day that God waits to bless him with that, will his faith be strengthened or will it be weakened? And so God promises in Genesis 12, those opening verses, three things to Abraham. I'm stealing this from uh, Walter Kaiser, in case you care. First of all, he promises Abraham an heir. That is, he will, be, he will have a son. He promises Abraham an, an heritage. That is, he will be a father of a nation. And finally, he promises Abraham an inheritance, that is, a land will be given to him. And despite evidence of the contrary, Abraham, through, the, through it all, believes the promise. His faith will be tested by Pharaoh. It will be tested by the command to sacrifice his promise on board to him, among other difficulties. Yet, he dies believing the promises of God. Yet the story, full of promise and faith, is saturated with doubt and deceit. Can I give you just three examples? The first is an example of deceit. You remember that the promises of God are given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. By verse 10, Abraham finds himself in, in Egypt. Do you remember what he does? In a lack of faith about those promises, he convinces his wife to tell Pharaoh... Tell Pharaoh you're my sister so that he won't try to kill me to get to you. And guess what Pharaoh does? He says, oh, this isn't anyone's wife. I'll take her for myself. So in that act of deceit, he endangered his own wife, who would be the, the means by which God's promises would be fulfilled. And in case you think, well, you know, he's still learning this faith thing. It's a big whoopsie-doozy. Well, maybe it was. But by chapter 20... He does the same thing with a different king, Abimelech. It's the same story repeated. Not only does, does he struggle with this, this notion to deceive when, when it is convenient to him, there is also the story of division with Abraham. In Genesis 13, remember, the promise is made in chapter 12. He's, he's condemned by God and Pharaoh, by the way, in chapter, at the end of chapter 12 regarding the lies about his wife. At the beginning of chapter 13, we get the story of Lot and, and Abraham. God is blessing to the point this town ain't big enough for the two of them. And so they have to look at the land that they are blessed with, and they have to divide because they're not getting along anymore. Right, so is it to them? It feels like one long Thanksgiving, right? You know, you just you can handle Thanksgiving for an hour or two with with those people in your family. Well, this is just for months, right? So they eventually decide to split. Now, Lot, of course, chooses for himself the more prosperous land, the better land that is also associated with Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is as a separate story. But this division manages to endanger his own nephew. 
the only family he brought with him from Ur and later Haran. Finally, there is the issue of doubt in the story of Abraham. And these are only highlights. In Genesis 16, both Abraham and Sarah are tired of waiting. This is the most American Abraham gets here. He's tired of waiting. You remember what his wife comes up with the game plan. Look, God said, you're going to be the father of the nations. Not me. Didn't say it had to be through me. Here, I've got a servant here. Who, who, why don't you sleep with her? Conceive with her. And that child will, by law, ancient Near Eastern law, be our child. Not her child, our child. And that's what God wants us to do. Don't you love it whenever humans try to fix the problems God creates for himself? I mean, it always works out so good, guys, so good. No, what does it do? Hagar gets pregnant, and who would have thought there would be bitter and envious in that household now? So, Abraham doesn't want to deal with it anymore, allows Sarah to excommunicate, if you will, expel Hagar, and now endangers and victimize an innocent woman and her child. The son of Abraham is now expelled. And out of that line comes the, comes the Arab race. But what you have here is a lack of patience. Could we say even a lack of faith? So from afar, Abraham is known and remembered as a great man, and he was. Yet he, even he, is deeply flawed. A reminder that God calls us out of the world All too often, it takes a lifetime to shed away that old self and our fleshly struggles. By the way, the same could be said regarding his son and grandson. The story of Isaac and Jacob are really no better. The story begins in Genesis 24 when Isaac first meets Rebekah. It's a great love story. You can read it for yourself. But like Abraham before them, they follow a path of both faith and brokenness. At times, men, they're awesome. But often... They're less so. In one paracope, Isaac commits the same deceitfulness as his father's in Genesis 26. Isaac claims to uh, King Abimelech, uh, there's Ahimelech and Abimelech. Forgive me if I ever confuse those. None of us can spell them anyways. Uh, But Isaac claims to Abimelech that his wife, Rebekah, is actually his sister. It's the same story that his father, Abraham, did on two different occasions, and it it didn't turn out too good for him. God was ready to strike uh, Ahimelech dead in Genesis 20. Whenever Ahimelech gets a vision, he's like, oh, dude, this, this is a guy's wife. And he has to condemn the father who will bless all the nations. Now the nations are going to have to condemn this guy. Isaac does the same thing in Genesis 26. But then the story of Jacob is particularly noteworthy for his messy drama. If only we had time for this. In Genesis 28, Jacob travels to Laban's home and falls in love with one of his daughters, Rachel. Now, you need to remember, Jacob's name means deceiver. It has to do with his birth. There's, there's a, we'll do this on Wednesday nights. There's a lot of uh, stuff with twins and brothers in general, but twins in particular. So you got Cain and Abel, and then you got Jacob and Esau, and you got Isaac and Ishmael, Joseph and the boy. So this is a common theme in, in, in it. So Jacob is named deceitful, and the irony of Genesis 28 uh, and following is that the deceiver is deceived by his father-in-law on multiple occasions, constantly getting deceived, and the story ends when the deceiver deceives the one who deceived the deceiver. You, you lost yet? You still with me? It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great soap opera, right? Um, but what we find is, is that Jacob worked seven years to get his girl, Right? And what happens is Laban deceives the deceiver by giving him 
Leah. So now he's got a wife that he doesn't want, but he still wants to marry the girl he does want. And so he works another 70 years and gets Rachel, right? Now what happens? Jacob loves Rachel, doesn't love Leah. So God blesses Leah's womb and Jacob has multiple children with her. He, he withholds Rachel's womb for a while until finally she has two kids, Joseph the oldest, therefore his favorite, and Benjamin, the younger of the two, but second in command of his favorite, right? Now, parents, do you think this is going to cause any issues in the, in the family? Do you think it's going to cause any issues with the wives? Yes, this is why bigamy, polygamy, polyamory, whatever cool term the, the woke kids are saying these days is a problem, right? But it's also going to cause a problem among the boys, and it causes a lot of problems. The most notable, first of all, is that Joseph, Jacob's favorite son with his favorite wife, that sentence should never be uh, said in any other context, he is abused, he is bullied, and he is sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers. Now, notice the irony here. It is, it is Jacob's sons who send Joseph to Egypt. And it will be Jacob's sons who, while in Egypt, will cry out to God to deliver them from Egypt. They do the thing they were later condemned Pharaoh for doing. Secondly, we see Jacob's daughter, Dinah. We forget about her. They had one girl. She is violated by a Hivite. After the violation, the Hivite wants to marry Dinah. And she's a, a, this Hivite's a different tribe uh, nearby. So Jacob and the brothers tell this Hivite, yeah, you can marry Dinah since you have abused her, assaulted her. And they, they, they create a number of uh, things they have to do first. You read the story for yourself. I'm not going to go into details there. But here's the end of the story. The brothers walk into the Hivite village, and everyone thinks they're there for a wedding. They show up armed, and they slaughter everyone in the village. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. Or consider one more story. That's the story of Judah and Tamar. One of Jacob's sons, one of the more prominent son, that is called a lion's whelp later on in Genesis, prophesied by Jacob himself, is Judah. Judah had three sons. And they were all three very wicked. Their names were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, Ur named a woman, married a woman named Tamar. But Ur was evil, and God took his life. Problem is, is that Tamar had not conceived yet. And by Leverite law and ancient Near Eastern law, what happens is the next son, unmarried, is now responsible for carrying on his brother's name, rights, all inheritance, all that is associated with it. And so Onan now, the second son, is expected to conceive with his brother's, deceased brother's widow. Okay? He, of course, refuses to do that. Why? He's evil. God takes his life. Now, if you're Judah, you're thinking, okay, there's a common denominator that's happened here with the death of my boys. It's Tamar, right? You're thinking, I, I don't know what she's cooking. <laughs> right? I ain't eating it. Right? So Judah promises when my youngest son Shelah comes of age, I will give him to you and you can, you know, and all this stuff necessary can, can happen. Problem is Tamar's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And she goes to Sheila's, uh, Sheila's uh, birthday party when he's of age and guess what doesn't happen? There ain't no wedding happening. Judah lies to her. Tamar gets desperate. She's been deceived. She's been lied to. 
So Judah goes to have a party with the boys out of town. Tamar dresses as a harlot, sleeps with her father-in-law. She has two sons, Perez and um, Zerah. Those names sound familiar to you? Go back to Matthew chapter 1, will you? Verse 2, Abraham is father of Isaac. Isaac's father of Jacob. Jacob's father of Judah. Everything's good, right? Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is the family line of Jesus. And the reason all of this is important is because it demonstrates God has always and continues to use broken people for great things. How often have you heard someone say, you know, maybe you invite them to church or something, they say, oh, I'm going to come back to church. First, I've got to fix a few things in my life. Have you ever heard someone say that? If you live in the South, you've heard it a thousand times. What's wrong with that statement? That is not the way of the gospel. The gospel presumes you will never be able to fix yourself. It presumes that what you need is a miracle in the life that you have now. All of us need this. So the good news of Jesus Christ is is that God uses broken people to do great things. Now, this is the opposite message the world will try to give us. According to secularism, you are your brokenness. You are your genetics. You are your past. And so if your family, your father and his father and his father and his father before him, struggle with this area of of sin, if if, if it be alcoholism or, or, or whatever it might be, this is now your story. And you'll never escape from it. Because who your family is must be who you are. And so what society presents us isn't liberation that it claims, it's actually chains. Yet scripture is full of examples of men and women who are broken by circumstances, broken by their upbringing, broken by oppression, yet they were still used mightily by God. Never thought I would reference this particular individual, but work with me here, folks. I was reading an article several years ago of a, of a uh, 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 mainstream rapper. Uh, I don't listen to so I couldn't tell you, even if he's any good, I don't know what any of his songs are. Um, he spent eight months in prison. And during that eight months, among other things, he read through the Bible, cover to cover. And he was asked by a reporter, what did you think, think of the Bible? And the artist said, quote, it was deep. It gets better than that. It was deep. I like the parts where some character was once this, but he ended up like that. Like he be dissing Jesus. There you go. Then he ends up being a saint. That was cool, he said. I don't know how much you be dissing Jesus, brother, but, uh, bra, sorry, I got a bra. But, um, but his point, I think, is well received. If you read the Bible, what is it on every single page? When God gets a hold of someone, their story, their identity, their future, their plans, their hopes, their dreams, their abilities changes instantly. God uses broken people. Whether you're a pagan like Abraham called out of that. Whether you're a womanizer like Isaac or Jacob, you're called out of that. Whether you're violent like Judah and others and come out of that. Whether your, 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 your conception is questionable like Perez and Zerah, God can call you out of that because God uses broken people. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about brokenness. The first thing it says is sin is a universal problem and lies at the root of our brokenness. 
Sin leads to and is the cause of brokenness. Despite secular religion's best efforts to pit people against people, the righteous and the unrighteous, the woke and the unwoke, is, is, that, a, is that another term I can, I can coin there? The your rights and the unwoke. Here we, here we go. Copyright 2020. But all of us are fallen human beings. That includes our heroes, our leaders, our parents, our children, our family, our friends, our co-workers. Everyone else is, is broken. All of us are. And that's where the Bible begins. It requires us to be realistic about our hearts and be sympathetic towards other sinners. Why? Because we are equal before the cross. That means I have to be honest about who I really am, not what the press release says I am. But I must be honest about I too am broken. I too am lost. I too am a sinner. But at the same time, I must be sympathetic to my neighbor, my parents, my grown children, my, my, my confusing in-laws, my fellow church members. They too are sinners in need of grace. Not only that, but we learn that Jesus saves the broken. The question is not, am I a sinner, but will I be set free from it? And if we are found in Christ, if we turn to Christ, the answer is an emphatic yes. The gospel narratives are full of examples of Jesus healing the broken. The demonized, the blind, the deaf, the dead, all of them are, are, are liberated by Jesus. Now, the purpose of these narratives is not to present to us a, a humanitarian Jesus that fits your political preference. That's not the point of those stories. You don't open up the gospels and say, wow, Jesus sure was nice to blind people. Wow. We should support policy to support blind people. You should support policy that support blind people. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is for you, dear reader, to see the Bible as a mirror and say, I'm the blind person here. And I need Jesus. I'm the dead person here. And I need Jesus. I'm the demonized. And I need Jesus. Because Jesus heals us of our brokenness. Can I give you an example of this? In Genesis 22, Abraham is marching up a mountain. It takes him three days to get there. And you remember, he, he is going by command of God to sacrifice his only begotten promised son. What do we discover? Isaac, he's looking around. He says, Dad, Dad I, I see the firewood. That's good. I, I, I see the matches. That, that, that's good. I see we got everything ready for this sacrifice, but where's the lamb? What was Abraham's answer? Jehovah Jireh. God will provide for us a lamb. You can read the rest of the story and something strange happens. There's no lamb. Sure, Isaac is preserved, yes. But then a ram, not a lamb, is caught in the thickets. And that ram is sacrificed by Abraham. Where is the lamb? I think John the Baptist answered that question for us, didn't he? He says, look, guys, behold, you sons of Abraham, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not only does, does the Bible reveal we're all broken, and sin is the cause of that brokenness, that Jesus saves us from our brokenness, but, God, but Jesus uses brokenness. I want you to think with me briefly. You tell me which one to you is a better coach. There's the coach whose team is armed with hall, future Hall of Famers and All-Stars, and they go out and they win a national championship. It's a good coach. I probably couldn't put up with those prima donnas, let's be honest. Then there's another coach who team probably won't go as far in March or whenever the NBA finals, like who cares about that? Probably won't go as far, won't have as many wins, won't have as big of a trophy. 
But given the team they have, given the limitations of their players, they play peak basketball or football or soccer, whatever it is, and they go farther than anyone could have imagined it to go. You tell me which one at that season was a better coach. I'm willing to bet some of your favorite sports teams weren't just the ones that won everything, because that rarely happens, to be honest. It was those teams that you began the season thinking, this team's not very good, we're going to change coaches, and it's just miserable to be a fan right now. But then as the season goes, you see each game they're a little better. Each game they're just figuring it out. And by the end of the season, they go where you never thought would have been possible. You tell me, which one is the better coach? Sure, God could use perfect people. They're called angels. That's not primarily what he uses. He uses broken people. You and me. And if he's going to use human beings, he can only use broken people. Yet he still chooses to do that. The challenges of our times are great, yet God still uses his church. As messy as it is, as messy as it can be, may we never lose the hope that God still uses broken people and broken churches and broken Christians to do great and mighty things. If you want a good example of this, turn to the prophet Amos. You don't have to literally turn there, but consider his story. In Amos chapter 7, he's having a, a conversation with a guy named Amaziah. You have to spell it right like you do Ahimelech and Bimelech. And it says, quote, I was no prophet, Amos says, nor a prophet's son. I was just a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people. You see, see what he's saying there? Look, look I, I ain't well educated. I don't have a lot of degrees at the end of my name. But this one thing I do know. I was this until God made me that. Isn't that your story? And if not, why isn't it? See, the purpose of the genealogy isn't just for us to look back and condemn. The purpose of the genealogy of Jesus is for us to look back and find ourselves. I, too, am deceitful, doubtful, and divisive like Abraham. I, too, commit the sort of heinous sins, repetitive cyclical sins as Isaac. I, too, can do some of many of the same things that Jacob has done. But what is it I find at the end of genealogy? Not an Abraham, not a Jacob, not an Isaac, not a Perez, not a Zerah, not a Judah. Who is it that is at the end of this genealogy? It is Jesus. Jesus, we discover, is a true and better Abraham who brings us to a, to a better promised land that he will give to us, not merely inherit He's true and better Isaac, who is offered on our behalf and for our sins, who is, who is not merely offered, but his life is taken for us. He is risen from the dead. He's true and better Jacob, whose sons will bless the nations. His daughters will fill the nations, and through them, his work will be complete. The purpose of the story isn't what we read in verse 2 and 3. But actually what we read in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. He is king. Long live that king. Let's pray.